This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Uh, we are ending our series, Hope is Alive Tonight. Uh, and it's, we've been going through the book of Ephesians the last couple of months, and man, I've enjoyed it immensely. Hope you guys have too. Uh, tonight we're ending it. We're going to be doing all of chapter six in one night. There's a lot of ground to cover, uh, but some really amazing stuff in there. And so what we're going to do is, uh, because we won't be able to do kind of like verse by verse and explain every single thing, I think there's a central theme here that will help illuminate the whole chapter. What we're going to do is just going to read the whole, all of chapter six. Um, another thing that's different tonight, we do not have slides for my sermon tonight. Um, I'll explain that in, in a little bit, but it's been a little bit of a crazy weekend for myself. Um, and so I just literally flew in from Phoenix uh, like an hour before church started. So, um, But what that means for you is we'd love for you to put a Bible on your lap. So if you brought one, awesome. If you have one on your phone or tablet, there might be one in the seat back in front of you. You can just go to Ephesians 6 and just camp out there, and we're going to be spending most of our night uh, right there. And I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, uh, the New International Version, but if you have a different version, that's totally fine. Um, but would, uh, as we read this together, this is my hope, is that uh, the Holy Spirit is always a way better preacher than me, um, so that we would let these words, these are the living words, these are the transformative words, just kind of seep into our heart. And then we'll take the next uh, few minutes to just kind of unpack them together, so... Let's start in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 6. It says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is the Bible verse I make my kids memorize first and foremost, right? Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate or provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the training and instructions of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do and whether they are a slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. And yes, Paul is threatening masters right there. Uh, Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you, um, if it's your Bible, just underline or circle that word heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And when your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, all of them. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for our Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. To Caicus, which by the way, ladies, if you're looking for a good son's name, there you go. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. And here we go. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with, fam, with faith for, from God and, sorry, love with faith from God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with an undying love. We did it. Finished Ephesians. Um, so we have, a, we have a lot to unpack here. Uh, that word I told you to uh, underline uh, is that word heavenly realms. Are often can be translated spiritual realm, but it's actually one Greek word that just means heavenlies. Um, and the reason why I want to underline that is because I believe that that word is not only central to this chapter, this passage, but it's actually one of the major predominant themes in all of the book of Ephesians that we have yet to touch on. But Paul opens his letters talking about the the spiritual realm and the heavenlies, and he closes his letter with this finally, and he's talking about this other reality, this other realm. Um, And so we uh, tonight are going to be focusing on that. What, what is the reality, the spiritual reality that exists beyond uh, what we can see and touch and feel? And, and, and immediately that, that draws skepticism within most people's hearts because we live in a world that is incredibly progressive and scientific and what you see is what you get. And, and so the idea that there could be anything miraculous or beyond what we could see or feel, that there's even a spiritual realm that exists, uh, sometimes can be a far stretch for people's imagination. But I, w- I wanted to read you a quote from a scientist um, who's also a believer and, and just, uh, just kind of some insight he gives on how backwards that thinking can be. And sometimes we use science as an excuse not to believe in the spiritual realm when in fact the scientific method really lends to the reality that there has to be a possibility for things outside of that. So I just wanted to read this to you. This is by a guy named Thomas Burnett, who's the editor at American Scientific Foundation. He says, It is one thing to celebrate science for its achievements and remarkable ability to explain in a wide variety of phenomena in the natural world. But to claim there is nothing knowable outside the scope of science would be similar to a successful fisherman saying that whatever he can't catch in his nets does not exist. Once you accept that science is the only source of human knowledge, you have adopted a philosophical position called scientism that cannot be verified or falsified by science itself. It is, in a word, unscientific. And so we live in this world that's that has this new kind of worldview, not called being scientific, but scientism. Like we believe in science because it's what we can prove and see, but the reality is, is that there is no scientific evidence to believe that in the first place. And so Paul writes this letter telling something that would have been fairly normal for the ancient world to understand that there is a spiritual realm. But in our day and age, sometimes it's a kind of a far stretch. 
And so what I'm asking us tonight is to, to believe the word of God that not only does the spiritual realm exist, but actually in a lot of senses, it's as real, if not a greater reality than what we can see. And there's a reason for that because when we can embrace that, it actually gives us hope. It gives us hope in the, in the midst of incredible uncertainty. And, and the reason for that is it reminds us even in, in hard times and loss and grief and pain that there is a greater reality that exists. And I just want to give you um, just a recent example was this morning. So last Friday, I got a call from my dad that my grandma um, is, passing away, is passing away. And he said, if you want to say goodbye, you should get here as soon as you can. She lives in Phoenix. So Saturday night, um, Jen and the kids stayed here and I got in a late flight, went over to Phoenix and um, slept on a couch and woke up early and went and spent some time with my grandma and was 91 years old and I sat with her and held her frail, just skin and bone hands as she's on a breathing machine and we talked about her grand, great grandkids and this. she's like, how's the church? And you can barely hear her, she's just a whisper and um, told her about you guys and and we started realizing, I'm, I'm in this room that is this little condo in Scottsdale, Arizona with a loud air conditioning and the sounds of an oxygen tank and beeps and there's just nothing tranquil about this place at all. And yet there was such a strong peace in that room. And the day before she was... She was talking to my dad and my grandma, who's a, literally about to go meet Jesus, about to breathe her last at any minute. She just looks at him and says, I feel so safe. You see, for my grandma, she gets closer to heaven. She also realizes not only is this someplace she's going to go, but it, actually there's a spiritual realm right here. That there is this reality that she's living in. That on her deathbed, she says things Keep in mind, this is without morphine, <laughs> right? This is without drugs. She's literally holding me and she's just saying things like, I feel so peaceful, I'm ready. And, I, and it was such a good reminder for me, even when I was getting ready to share this message, that, the, that, that there's, this, there's this realm that's greater than what we see, but the problem is we're so distracted by what we see and what's right in front of us that we forget that there's another reality happening all around us, not just when we die, but currently. And... Uh, and so just, I was thinking about how to, how to illustrate this, just this idea that there's something else entirely going on than what we see. And I was thinking about when I was about to propose to Jen. And if, you, if you're a guy, if you've ever proposed before, you just know it's just this nerve-wracking thing. I didn't, and, and my problem, and I don't give advice, I don't recommend people do it the same way, I didn't tell, say anything to Jen that we were going to get married. She would want to talk about it, and I'd be like, nope, I'm home school. You're not going to know. You know, my intention is to marry you, but we're not going to talk about it. And just like, you know, you can imagine, they just drive you nuts. Like, are you going to propose? You dragging your feet? Like, what's going on? So anyways, it's the day that I'm going to propose. And that morning we're at brunch with some friends and my mentors there who knows I'm going to propose that night. And, and it's already kind of been a source of tension, like in our dating relationship about like, when are you going to propose? And I know when I'm going to do it, but she doesn't know. It's going to be like five years or five days. And so in this moment, I literally... My, my mentor goes, Jen, when is this guy going to propose? <laughs> I was like, 
choking on my eggs. Like, <laughs> what? And she's like, oh, we're, you know, and she's like totally playing cool. It's like, we're just not talking about it. It's like, man, he's like, this guy's dragging his feet. You guys should already be engaged. And I'm just like boiling over, like, what are you doing? You're ruining today. Because guess what Jen's thinking when we get in the car? Think she's feeling great? No. She's like, she's upset and sad and angry. Like, wh- why aren't you? Why are we engaged, Benji? Why are you dragging your feet? And I'm just like, oh my gosh. And so this whole day, she's like angry. I mean, rightfully so. And she has no idea I'm going to propose in a matter of hours. And so I pick her up and she's dressed really nice. We're on her way to this really nice banquet where I'm about to propose to her in front of all of our friends. And she's just like, she's like just upset. And so I'm like, great, like, she's not going to say yes to me now, right? So I do, and so I was like, God, what do I do? So I started playing worship music. I'm <laughs> just like, man, God, just convict her heart, right? Just like, just turn on Caleb or something. Like, it didn't work. It didn't help. Um, needless to say, it ended up working out. She said yes, but I, I was thinking about that day, and for Jen, it was a day of, Sadness and anger and confusion and torment. And for me, it was a day of anticipation and excitement. And we were in the same car, living the same day together. But totally different realities. And I think what Paul is, is reminding this church in Ephesus is he's saying, there's another reality happening. And if you only focus on what's happening right in front of you, Ephesus, the persecution you're encountering, the situations you're in, the, 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 Roman, um, uh, the Roman rule over you, then, then, then you're going to just be crushed under the weight of that. But if you recognize there's another reality happening right now, lift your head up, then you'll start to see things differently. And, and, and if you're like, well, you know, how do you know he's talking about that in this way? Well, let's, one thing I didn't realize is that word heavenly realm or spiritual realm or heavenlies, this Greek word um, paranoias shows up six times, sorry, five times in the book of Ephesians. Like I said, at the very beginning, at the very end, which is another good indicator that Paul is trying to make this a predominant theme. But I just wanted to read you these five occasions that Paul uses the word spiritual realm. Because normally when we think of it, we think of it in Ephesians 6, which has to do with what? Spiritual warfare, right? So we normally think about the like, spiritual realm of like, demons and angels, and we're thinking, like, oh, it's kind of scary. Like, I don't want to talk about that. And, you know, like, can I come back next week? Like, but wait. Because that's when Paul talks about this throughout the book, let's listen to what he says about this realm. Ephesians 1 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So that's, that's, that's our opening sentence, our opening introduction to the heavenly realms in this letter is that in this new realm, in this reality, you have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing. In this realm. What does that even mean? I mean, the, the scope of that is enormous. Right? And so this is, where we, this is where we begin. Our opening line, right, is in this reality. Remember, he, he's talking to orphans and slaves, people who have been oppressed and suppressed. He says, in this realm, you are blessed. Not just a little bit, but with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.20 says, 
talking about the Father, says, He exerted this power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm. So in this realm, Jesus is seated, seated enthroned, okay? So who's the boss in this realm? Christ. Who's blessed? Us. Ephesians 2, 6 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm. So where is Christ seated? Enthroned in the heavenly realms. Where are we seated? With Christ. So we have a seat of authority and we're blessed in the heavenly realm. This is starting to sound like a pretty sweet place. Like this is not the, like, just the spiritual warfare attack. No, no, this is actually an incredibly significant reality that Paul's trying to paint with the entire letter to this church. Ephesians 3.10, listen to this, says, His intent was that through the church, this is Christ, His intent was that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, meaning the demonic principalities and powers in the world, that through the church, that we would display just how awesome God's wisdom is. Kind of, like, kind of like a boss in this realm. Like Jesus is enthroned in this realm. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're enthroned. And our job is to literally shame the enemy with the manifold wisdom of God as his church. And then in Ephesians 6.12, it talks about, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is what Paul's saying. is like, listen, you're, you're fighting the wrong battle. You're focusing on the wrong thing but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, so here's our, our foundation tonight, and then we'll get into some of the specifics of the text. The foundation of chapter 6, which I believe is the foundation for all of this letter, is that the greater reality we have to focus on is the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. And within this realm, we have more authority and power and victory than we could ever imagine but there's still a battle to be fought. And the, the detriment would be to have all this authority and power and to never fight with it. Or to engage in a fight where you think you have less power than what you have. So Paul's trying to do both. He's like, there's a battle to be fought, but don't be fooled. It's a battle that's already been won. It's with power and authority you've already been given. And this is where he lays out, and, and, this, and this has tremendous bearing on what he talks about in the verses prior and the verses after that. Specifically, when he's addressing Aristotle's household cults, right, marriage, husband and wife, father and children, and then he goes on and touches the last of Aristotle's three household cults, masters and slaves. Oftentimes, we read that, and we just feel really uncomfortable, and I, I know I have in the past, because I'm like, why doesn't Paul just say slavery's bad? Why does he give commands to slaves? Well, first, let's remember a few things. Number one, Paul is a slave, writing to other slaves. And so when he's doing this, he's not condoning slavery. He's actually giving them a subversive strategy to overthrow something from the inside out. He doesn't condone it. If you don't believe me, read Philemon. It's literally a letter trying to convince a slave master to give up his slave because he's now a brother in Christ. So Paul is, is in no way, so if you ever have a friend like, look, the Bible talks about slavery, okay, no, 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 this is not what Paul's saying at all. 
if you know anything about the Imago Dei, you understand anything that Paul's saying. A matter of fact, what Paul says right here in verse, let's just read this again in Levison verse 8. This is from, from a slave to another slave. It says, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Meaning, guess what? In this realm, in this reality, what's coming to you is God sees everything that you're doing. And in this reality, there is no slave and master. And then he goes and starts talking to masters. And this would have been mind-blowing for, for a, someone of an authority in that culture, let's say a Roman centurion or even a Jewish slave owner, reading these commands that he would have given them. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours, meaning, hey, listen, you're the same as them. And there is no favoritism with him. So Paul, and again, in, in a very intelligent Greek way, is actually undoing the fabric of what they knew in slavery in the day, which was immense. 90% of Rome was slaves. There's an empire built upon slavery. Not, not the same kind of slavery we would understand today, like human trafficking and the slave trade and all the horrific, horrendous things that have come along with that. There's a little bit more, again, not good, but there's a little bit of a different idea but what Paul does right here, he says, listen, there's a greater reality than what our hand. This is, again, can you imagine Paul literally in chains reminding this church for predominantly slaves, there's something bigger happening here. In this realm, you are the same as a master. In this realm, you are seated on high with Christ. In this realm, you have every spiritual blessing and so for those of us who are in the room, and again, not that you're dealing with as a modern-day slave, but maybe you're a slave to something else. Maybe it's a mindset. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's, maybe it's a sin issue. Maybe I, I don't know what it is, but I just want to remind you, maybe it's depression. Maybe it's grief. There's a greater reality. It doesn't make the pain easier. And it doesn't dismiss the pain but it draws our, our gaze and our attention to something that runs deeper than our circumstances. Does that make sense? So this is what Paul kind of lays out. But then he goes and starts talking about the battle. He starts laying out this idea of spiritual warfare. But before we start talking about spiritual warfare, and we've kind of alluded to this, is that one of, one of my problems about talking about spiritual warfare is immediately, whenever I talk to them about this, it turns into a form of dualism. What I mean by dualism is Jesus and Satan are in the octagon, and we're trying to figure out who's going to win. And you're like, well, I, I wouldn't say it like that, but it's kind of how it's approached. You don't know how many times I talk about Encinitas, and people start talking about, man, it's a really dark place, a lot of spiritual warfare, and it's true, but according to Scripture, as powerful and present as dark spiritual forces may exist in this town, Jesus exists in a stronger way. Let me prove it to you through scripture. The same book, Ephesians, to go back to chapter 1, starting in verse 20, it says, I'm sorry, verse 19 says, and his incomparable great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. There it is. Far above all rule and authority, 
power, and dominion. Those words sound familiar. They're the same words used in Ephesians chapter 6. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So it doesn't just say he's above them. He says he's far above them. This is, this is the reality in which we approach spiritual warfare. It's not dualistic. It's not like who's going to win. Who's got the best weaponry? A matter of fact, listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 15. Sorry, let's start in verse 14. It says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, he stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen to this, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumph, triumphing over them by the cross. So, not only does he acknowledge that there are spiritual powers and authorities, but what he says here in, in, in Colossians 2, verses 15, he says he's disarmed them. They have, they have no actual weaponry, artillery. What they have are lies. What they have are shadows. What they have is trying to convince you of a power that actually has been stripped from them. And so Paul, Paul knows this. He writes this in all his letters. He's trying to, to raise their gaze up. And so when we talk about spiritual warfare, we have to understand we fight from a place of a battle that's already been claimed and won, but it's still going on. But that power and authority is not something that we have to question like, well, I guess I can engage in spiritual warfare. I don't really know how to pray. No, no, no. You, you've already... It's already been one for you. And so when you pray, when you go to battle, have that spiritual swagger about you. When you pray, believe it's going to happen because it already has happened on the cross. When you go against spiritual forces that are coming against you or your family or your neighborhood, don't go timidly like you're not sure if God's going to show up because he already showed up. And this is how we fight from. This is where we fight from. So when I pray for my wife, when I pray for my kids, when I pray for this church, when I pray for my city, I don't think I'm that great. I don't think I'm that strong. I don't think I have any reason for God to hear me more than anyone else. I just believe the Bible and what it tells me about God, where he sits and where I sit. And where all of these other people and all of these other creatures and rulers and authorities sit within that, do they exist? Yes. Is there a battle? Yes. But it is a battle that they are losing and they know it. And so all they have left is lies. This is why in John 8, Jesus talks, talking about Satan says he is the father of lies. When he lies, he is speaking his native tongue. So in just a minute here, we're going to start talking about fiery darts of the enemy. And as we're doing that, I don't want you to think about anything other than those, those most likely, from what we understand about Scripture, are probably deceptions, divisions, or lies. They're actually powerless unless you've given them power. This is why in verse 3 talks about he walks around like a roaring lion, because we already know who, who the roaring lion is of Judah. So he tries to mimic his power and cast a shadow greater than he is. I love this. And so he starts talking about this. This is the armor that he has, which, by the way, most likely he's referencing Isaiah 59. 
verse 17, when he says this, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet salvation on his head. He put on the garments and vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. This verse is talking about God, Yahweh, which guess what that means? The armor we're putting on is God's armor. We're wearing his armor. So when he goes on, he starts talking about that you put on the belt of truth. Why, why this is significant is because in that culture, they believed your soul was in your belly region. So the belt you wore, he's talking about how do you guard your soul? With truth. What does truth protect against? Lies. Lies that seep into your soul. It says guard it with truth. And then he talks about the, the breastplate, which guards your heart has to be righteousness, not a righteousness of your own, but a righteousness that has come through Christ. That your feet that you walk in, right, what advances you is the gospel of peace. These are beautiful imagery, and it's describing the, the, the war attire that a, a Roman centurion would be wearing, but he spins it. And he talks about the shield, which would have been, this is so beautiful, it's a shield of faith. And in that day, when they would go to war, Kind of like the, the greatest weapon you had was like a flaming arrow, right? And this is actually the same um, uh, weapon that Artemis, the goddess in Ephesus, used. And so Paul brilliantly talks about there's a shield of faith that you raise up to extinguish it. And this shield you would actually soak in water before battle. So if a flaming arrow hit it, it would extinguish the flame. But here's what this verse doesn't, doesn't say explicitly, but would have come up in every imagination of the person hearing this letter is in battle, the shield was always linked up with a series of shields. So when a Roman guard would advance, what they would do is they'd walk in a straight line and they would have these large rectangular things and when the fiery darts would come, they would, in a line, raise up their shield around in such ways that the, flames, the flaming darts were impenetrable. And so what Paul does right here is, you know those shields that you see? Your shield is a shield of faith that is best at work when it's linked up with someone else's shield of faith. And I can't tell you how many times where I need to, I, I call a brother of mine. Or I ask my wife, I'm like, would you, would you raise up your shield of faith with me? I'm sensing these lies coming my way. The, the, ang- the anxiety in my heart is on the rise or this lie in my head. And what I need right now is not only my own faith, because sometimes, frankly, my arm's tired. I need my brothers and my sisters to join their faith with mine and remind me of the truth. And I love this. And he says, the helmet of salvation. What's guarding your mind? Salvation. You've already been rescued. You've been saved. And last thing, these are all, by the way, defensive mechanisms. They're all armor. The one offensive weapon he gives us is this. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, if you're like, that's it? You weren't going to give me like some other cool like insight with the Greek word? No, no, this, this just means this. This is our weapon. And if for an ounce you're like, man, is there something else I can have? I, I'm just going to say a loud no, and here's why. Because when Satan shows up to attack Jesus, this is his weapon of choice, and it should be yours. If this was a good enough weapon for Jesus, it's a good enough weapon for me. 
And so when these dark spiritual forces come against me and I start hearing lies and when fear tries to start creeping in, what I need to do is pull out my sword, the same one that Jesus used to defeat Satan, and begin to start praying this out loud. And the reason for that, and the reason why I specifically say out loud, is I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that demons and Satan himself cannot read minds. God is omniscient, but they are not. So God can hear when you pray in your mind, or when you pray in your head, or pray in your heart, and it's totally fine. Uh, demons and angels cannot. So when you pray, when you're doing spiritual warfare, pray out loud. Pray scripture out loud. Don't bank on your own authority or how good you are with your SAT words. Use this and go to work. Because you know the saddest thing would be to hear this message and to be reminded, oh my gosh, we have all the authority and the power that Jesus has because he seated us with him and we see this battle and we're just like, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's me 90% of the time. Whether it's laziness or fear or whatever, I don't engage in battle because I don't think I'm, I have what it takes. I don't know enough. And Paul is telling this church filled with misfits and the social lows of the day. And he's saying, do you know who you are? Do you know that there's a battle going on? It's not against flesh and blood. Right? I remember a friend telling me this. People are not the enemy. The enemy's the enemy. So when you think it's your boss who's lame, when you think it's your mom who doesn't get it, when you think it's your spouse who doesn't care, people aren't the enemy. The enemy's the enemy. And what's been seeping into your heart is not their humanity. It's the lie of the enemy that needs to come be confronted with the word of God. So don't be given all this authority and power and weaponry and then you just sit there and don't use it. And this is why he says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me and when I speak words, may I be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel which I'm an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You know what his response is after talking about the armor of God? Pray, 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 pray. This is how we advance. And this is why I am convinced why 99% of Christians I talk about I say, I don't pray as much as I should. Because man, if the enemy can get us to not pray, then he has disarmed us. Ian Bounds says, prayer can do what God can do. So my hope tonight is that we would awaken, number one, to the reality that there is, there is a greater realm, a greater reality happening right now. So, if, man, if you just feel trapped in darkness, you can't catch a break, there's a greater reality than your circumstances. But let's wake up to this, that there's a battle in this realm that we could easily be advancing, easily be winning. But what we need to do is actually fight. And we fight through prayer, prayer, specifically praying the word of God in the spirit. And when that happens, look out. The church becomes a church.
the kingdom of God advances. I love how Paul ends his letter because he ends it the exact same way he starts it. I'm going to invite Brandon and Ashley to come on up. Matter of fact, would you guys close your eyes right now? I'm just going to read this over you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith, with faith from the sorry, in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You know what we should walk away with after talking spiritual warfare? Grace and peace. By the way, this church in Ephesus began to be pastored by a young man named Timothy. It's not in scripture, but historians tell us that Timothy died a martyr as a horrific pagan parade was coming down the streets of Ephesus, degrading everything that God held dear. And he stood in the middle of it and was trampled. This is the same Timothy where the verse, God does not give us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but a love and power and a sound mind. You see, the church in Ephesus didn't become a mega church. Didn't make massive cathedrals or temples. But it was a part of a movement that's changed the world. Grace and peace. So what I do right now is I, I want you to do some spiritual warfare. I want you to recognize the greater reality, this, this spiritual realm, this heavenly realm that is beautiful. It's beautiful because Christ has made it that way. And as we step into that reality that we would pray differently. We would cast off those lies and that fear. Walk boldly into the, the role that God's asked us to be in. So why don't you take a minute, close your eyes. Brandon asked you, you're going to sing a song. And as you do, just ask yourself this question. What lie have you been believing? What fiery dart of the enemy has been lodged in your heart? And as you recognize it, in just a minute, we're going to pray together. We're going to raise our shields of faith together. We're going to do some spiritual warfare here tonight. And we're going to walk out of this place with grace and peace because of what he's done.